Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the North South podcast, where we discuss all things under the sun. And the corpse that we've decided to drag into the UV radiation today is experimental music. Let's address the elephant in the room. The last episode you did with me, Nout. Bit of a weird one. Strange dynamics. Over-familiarity. Yep. I think it's time to come clean and admit that we both consider trust to be more important than monogamy and that I practice polyamory and that Nout is actually my partner and not my Dutch teacher anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Um, and very conveniently so, may I ask, may I add, um, Callum, do you have any questions or comments? About polyamory in general or just your setup? <laughs> Our setup? I mean, I think, I think um, over the course of the last few months, I, I now understand it more. I can't claim to be fully versed in the world of polyamory, but, uh, but uh, I, I think I know enough for your particular circumstance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you for your passionate approval and um, encouragement. That was very eloquent. I, I didn't say encouragement. I will <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'd like to say a couple of things about both of my gracious hosts, if that's okay. By all means. Um, so thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm honored. I mean, okay, I was the one who kind of insisted on being on here, um, which happened after I heard Georgia explain the brilliancy of Green Day to Callum in a previous episode. I think it must have been your first or your second one. And really, I loved it because I thought it was creative, funny, insightful and deep. So on that note, especially for you, Callum, I've also prepared now a pretzi with a lyrical analysis of Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Now, that's a joke, of course. I do love the mentality that both of you guys have of not asking why when it comes to doing something, but rather of making something happen. Um, I also think that you are a perfect match for each other. Callum is really into obsessive people with mustaches who know how to do their research and don't know when to shut up, whereas Georgia really loves talking to plants. Callum, I am not gonna lie, I was honestly quite nervous to meet you at first. Um, First of all, because it seems that you have a thing for Belgians, or at least retired Belgian police officers turned world-famous private detectives. So here's hoping that I don't end up in your chocolate box, which is a reference to Poirot. Kind of snuck it in there for you. Do you love me now? No? Um, I'm very proud. This is a very proud moment. Aww, yay. Um, you also seem to have a more educated cultural compass than me and Georgia, and your posh accent is so much more John Rushkin than I could ever hope to attain. However, all of my worries and nerves about meeting you have dissipated now that you've appeared in front of me through the magic of the internet. Just like that, poof. 
Um, it's kind of a miracle this podcast is actually happening, though, considering how accident-prone you are. You've been tested by the elements, cars, and the pavement so many times that it's a wonder you have managed to hold on to all of your limbs. I was kind of expecting that this podcast today wouldn't end up happening because you'd be dealing with some freak accident where your mattress had spontaneously combusted, or you were in the midst of uh, setting the curtains on fire because you'd been making french fries. What can I say about now that I didn't already cover in my last rather epic culinary themed roast? Well, one thing that springs to mind is that having lived together this last month, I can confirm that his roast potatoes are better than his comedy roasts. Uh, that's maybe not saying much, though. I'll let the listeners decide. I can definitely say, based on my time with Nelt in the recent weeks, that this his sense of humour is subjective. Mm-hmm, to put it mildly. I also think it's incredibly rich to hear you make wisecracks about Callum being accident-prone, since I have yet to see you walk across a level surface without tripping at least five times. That being said, I do have to add that both you and Callum are similar in that I was the only one out of the three of us to actually finish her share of the prep for this podcast episode. So you both have procrastination in common. Me, I still procrastinate, but prepping for this podcast was actually my procrastination from other projects, so I'm off the hook on this occasion. I hardly think so. Nelson and myself have managed with the prep quite well. You, on the other hand, have gone overboard as per usual. We wanted a few kind words, not an epitaph. That's rather ironic, given how much of a tangent that went off on here. <laughs> We're going to have to shave his ass down in editing. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was really wonderful. Your roast potatoes are very good. Thank you. Thank you. I do take great pride in them. Today's topic is all about experimental extreme music. The term in and of itself is questionable at best. So throughout this undoubtedly long-winded episode, all three of us will weigh in and give different examples of what we think experimental extreme music constitutes for us through our indubitably selective lenses. Get ready for a wild, shocking ride through all kinds of genres, wild ideas, lyrical analysis, academic interpretations, and um, probably a whole bunch of personal overshares that will lead into uncontrollable chaos. An experiment in and of itself on an experimental podcast about experimental music. If that doesn't sum us up, I don't know what else does. What do you think, Callum? I am not quite sure what to think. <laughs> Did you like it? I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> it was... Mm, yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> 
Well, I have some words for you about them. Not too many, just 2,000. Several thousand. Just 2,373 words. <laughs> oh, really? That means... <laughs> I'm expecting anything less right now. <clears throat> what I do? It is what you do. Okay, are you ready for this? The floor is yours. We shall mute so we can take it all in. Okay. After much overthinking about what constituted experimental music and how I should approach this whole thing, and if anything I listen to can actually be considered experimental, which saw me reading academic texts about extreme metal vocals and the history of Satanism with a YouTube video playing an hour-long depression ambience in the background, because I am, of course, first and foremost the main character in a gloomy teen movie and have to trick myself into doing work by providing a suitably glum soundtrack, I found myself reading a few interviews from a band I have very recently gotten into and one thing led to another and here I am once again dragging Callum into the world of black metal. Today's band is Deathspell Omega and after reading a few interviews, scrolling through lyrics and mostly just vibing to their albums over the last week, I'm going to make like a man and declare myself an expert. So... One thing that stood out to me from one of their interviews was a description of the first time a member listened to polyrhythmic music. There's this vivid remembrance that the first time I heard polyrhythmic music many years ago, it gave me an actual headache. Fast forward two days listening to such material and nothing remained but fascination and a granted rather partial understanding of another musical colour. It's worth every effort. New worlds can literally open in front of you. And then that which seemed indecipherable becomes as clear as water, unlocking the emotions contained therein. You best believe I geeked out over how beautiful and familiar a description this felt to me when I first read it. It was transformative and seemed to put into words better than I'd been able to during our last music-themed episode, part of the beauty and enjoyment I find in extreme and experimental music. It also tied in quite nicely with what I'd been reading about vocals. Again, I've read a chapter in a book, so, you know, buckle up, bitches. Basically, in contemporary Western musical cultures, the singing voice splits into two distinctive vocal spheres, one being modal voice, in which regular vibrations of the vocal folds generate harmonic spectra. This is clearly seen in conventional, melody-based, and often popular music. The other would be a voice with a high degree of roughness or noise. Here, the modal voice is either entirely absent or appears only conditionally as part of other uncommon phonation types. These unusual phonation types can be seen or combined over the entire spectrum of avant-garde composition and in extreme metal. They include things such as growling, squealing, shouting and screaming, etc. The book I was reading asked a couple of questions in line with this breakdown. Namely, what sets apart monstrous or human voices? Are there similarities to be found between voice acting and the vocal practices of extreme metal? Consider the way we describe the voices of different extreme metal artists. The book I read this in used examples of Mayhem Maniac, who was described as total splattering chainsaw core. This obviously does not mean he sounds exactly like a chainsaw, but it's the kind of mood and imagery that the voice and tone evokes. As a side note, I also really like it as a nice little reference to their song Chainsaw Guts Fuck. A very nice bedtime listen if you ever can't sleep, by the way. There is a degree of pizzazz and theatricality to this description, and others like it, of which there are many. And I would argue it's the critical review version of what these extreme vocals are trying to do in their music. 
that is abrasive evocative imagery that removes humanity from the performer and instead confronts us with something inhuman and evil much in the same way that horror movies and games can also allow one to experience the depths of both human and non-human abyss. A couple of quotes I really enjoyed from this book about this non-conventional approach to vocals. In extreme metal, vocal pitch gives way to various sorts of noisy tone production. This is not to say that the vocal contour becomes flat, since it is possible to identify in growled or screamed lyrics successions of timber. But as opposed to conventional vocal melodies, the relative positions of those sounds have more to do with the internal organization of complex spectra than with the perception of fundamental frequencies. And similarly, what accounts for the abnormal effect is not so much the musical context framing the extreme voice as is the voice's sheer materiality, or to be more precise, the supposed incongruity between a human body and a seemingly inhuman voice. As I have already alluded to in my introduction, my discovery and interest in Death Spell Omega created a nice overlap with this research. In particular, this conversation about the impact of an abnormal voice had a wonderful crossover with an interview I was reading with the band where they said that, in the beginning was the word. Our creative process always starts with the overall concept and its narrative, which is depicted through words. That language is then deciphered into a musical language. All are equally important, but not abiding by this order would yield the intolerable outcome of incoherence. When you lose the capability of describing the world, madness lies within reach. A world that's currently pregnant with monstrosities poised to overshadow those of the past. And in turn, what kind of harmonies or dynamics or plain riffs can truthfully reflect these words? In terms of their sound, it is a cacophony of noise dissonant music and clashing sounds placed together with moving arrangements for which I have no words for other than otherworldly and beautiful. Loosely speaking, there is little official structure and the music is more of a landscape than it is a recognizable song with clearly defined verses, chorus and bridge. It is wild, untamed and provocative, a struggle set to music and representing the complex interplay of clashing ideas and debates which their lyrics portray. In the Synarchy of Molten Bones, for example, the music starts off slowly, silence represented within sound, a distant bell tolling as though prophesying doom and danger before a dissonant fanfare kicks in. This does not last, however, and we are robbed of whatever royal grandness might have been building as the music gives way into sinister screeches and is overtaken by choral voices, which too eventually fade. The landscape again shifts into sparseness, droning and draining us as we continue to listen, suspended in the knowledge this drone will end suddenly, yet still taken by surprise when the abrasive shift occurs and a battering cacophony of sound and competing vocals assault the listener. At every turn, the music obscures familiar patterns and its underlying melody is at times difficult to spot. To me, the music is almost trance-like, and a full-body experience I cannot help but give into. As the song progresses, it builds in this intensity, and as I watch the red push the grey out of sight on the video progress bar, I feel tightly coiled. The ending is inevitable, unfolding before me, but still the tension continues to build. When will it crash? How will it fade out? The answer is, it does not. It grinds to a halt and robs me of that finish, edging to the extreme. Round two begins with no warning, 
the next song on the album kicking in quicker and even more unrelenting than the last. This time, there is no slow start. We are plunged in media's res, faster and harder than the last time as the music pounds against our ears. Everything is tangled in together, entwined and writhing in one high mass of noise, which threatens to crush the listener with its intricate intimacy, which lasts just shy of half an hour in total, a satisfying quickie. I'll stop there because you should go and experience the rest for yourself. Experience here being the key word. And then once you have experienced this landscape, you can venture into the lyrical realm and try to make sense of the density of illusions and discussion taking place in the songs. I'm still picking my way through the meanings of their songs, not just on this album, but on others of theirs too. For the sake of this piece today, however, I wanted to focus on this one, since I came across an interesting reference to its closing lyrics in an interview with the band, in which they stated their aim to evoke Milton's Paradise Lost. I always have been and always will be a bit of a slut for Paradise Lost. So my ears pricked up at this reference, which affirmed their lyrics at the end of Sinecure were a reference to their portion of Paradise Lost, during which they said death was set free to prey upon the earth and served to announce their intent of focusing on the earthly incarnations of certain spiritual realities. In addition to this, they also spoke about there are many roads to pandemonium and that this was theirs. All of this was like red rag to a bull for me, and I could not resist grabbing my copy of Paradise Lost and comparing it to the lyrics. There's much to be said on this topic, especially on the topic of book 10 of Paradise Lost, where sin and death assert their wish to go after their author Satan and thrive as he has in other worlds with his self-determination. The emancipatory example of Satan's self-liberation acts as an inspiration for them. Methinks I feel new strength within me rise, wings growing and dominion given me large. To this, death replies, such a sense I draw of carnage, prey innumerable, and taste the savour of death from all things here that live. In Sinecure of Molten Bones, the lyrics paint the scene of thunder from below, like growling gods who erupt to be released and bear their fangs, which similarly references the hunger for freedom of those hellish gods aching for release. The grotesque imagery of a spectre that gnaws upon man like hounds chew on bones and offal appears reminiscent also of the carnage lusted after by death in Paradise Lost. Both texts depict a wild crazed carnage which is inhuman in its bloodlust, rendered animalistic by its craving for flesh. How to depict such violent and grotesque language? How to put to music this twisted imagery and give voice to the sheer horror of the story described? a gruesome tale which is not out of place in Black Death metal, or indeed in the Bible. It's here I see the appeal of the confusing mess of noise from the narrative conceptual point of view that the band listed as their first priority when working on an album before it is deciphered into a musical language. It is in line with voice acting or the creation of a soundtrack to a violent horror film or game. It's confusing and repugnant, and yet oddly satisfying in the same way these other modes of entertainment are. Compelling for its intensity and mesmerizing to the point where you can't look away. Unless, of course, you want to make like Satan and exercise your free will. Some inconclusive conclusions. What does all this mean? Probably fuck all, if we're being honest. 
What I can tell you that as I wrote this conclusion, I moved from the nice, melancholy, dark, academia, depressive work maniac ambience to cannibal corpses, I come blood. The battering music and gurgling growl fueled this conclusion and made me reflect on how much of my academic writing has only been made possible by providing myself with such intense soundtracks. I did once get feedback on a dissertation draft that informed me that one of my sentences sounded like a death metal album rather than a suitably academic tone. Aside from the fact this is quite possibly my favorite piece of feedback ever, I think there is a link between the extremeness of the music I like to accompany me when undertaking something as intense as writing a dissertation and the depths of intensity which the musicians are attempting to convey with their work. The dissertation writing, especially in those final stages, is the culmination of a demanding period of borderline manic or obsessive research and living and breathing your subject. In reading the interviews with Deathbell Omega and how they describe their creative processes and the compulsion to create and explore new and non-conventional ways of making music, and how they pull together seemingly disparate themes of Satanism, the Bible, obscure theological texts, philosophy, musical influences, and way more besides, I think there is a clear case to be made for why it works as a soundtrack to academic writing. In the band's own words, when music or lyrics seem to be channeled almost magically, it is most likely just the result of a rumination that lasted for days, sometimes months, on a subconscious level. It's not as if we get any rest. All of this is a calling and therefore well beyond obsession. And there we have it. The compulsive, impulsive desire to dissect, disembowel, eviscerate and penetrate a set of niche topics that you have adopted as your passion and that no doubt leave others baffled as to why you have become so captivated by them. Maybe this means something, maybe it means nothing. Is any of this connected to experimental music or am I just being indulgent towards a hobby within a hobby? Maybe so. I would argue, however, that there is something to be said for the idea that the whole experience is an experiment of extremity and that part of the reason it meets the criteria for experimental music is not just the ways in which the band challenges the listener with the abrasive vocals, varying between long and short albums with incredibly rich lyrics and delusions. The experimentation is also present in the way weirdos like me use this music to induce both manic productivity as well as escapist trances, in which the monstrously inhuman sounds allow for an almost meditative experience, wherein one can stare into space and contemplate whether Adam and Eve will ever be forgiven. I will end here for the sanity of anybody still listening. In the immortal words of Cannibal Corpse, delirium has taken hold, disembowelment is complete. There we go. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Georgia. That was really beautiful. Was I enjoyed. I enjoyed your observation that the music and the band, their music was experimental in terms of the effect on the audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially, they're pretty much, you know, that's sort of the point, isn't it? I think music is very dependent on the audience. One person can hear it and hear something completely different. I do agree. I think it's very experimental mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. regard. Mm-hmm. I, do like, I do like that you were, uh, well, as, as I am forced to listen to more and more, um, this is black metal. Mm-hmm. It, it's very easy to dismiss it when you don't get it. However, it's interesting to see how much black metal, forward slash death metal, um, 
it's interesting to see how much of the lyrics originate in sort of old English works and well, mm -hmm. literature in general. So obviously one can see the parallel between your life and uh, those writing the, uh, the, the black metal, death metal. Death yeah, metal. I will add that I'm not a Satanist though. <laughs> well. I have dabbled, I have dabbled, but never properly. <laughs> I was a witch rather than a Satanist. <laughs> I think what is also really interesting is the fact that, you know, the, well, first of all, the viscerality of the music. I have some stuff, so I don't want to say too much because I think I will connect it to when I do my piece on Scott Walker. But one thing I will say is that when it comes to that kind of experimental music is that, you know, the way that people sort of use it and the different approaches. So for you, for example, um, it has a sort of almost meditative effect as in mm -hmm. you sort of get like lost and en enveloped trance-like, you know, with it. Whereas for other people, I'm sure it can be an experience that is maybe closer towards, you know, if you would you hear this life in concert, you know, it would be much closer to a more like a violent kind of experience. Uh, but whereas, we, you know, so that is, I think, um, you know, when it comes to generally experimental music, it's just sort of how wide of, a, of, a, of an effect it can have when, for example, mm -hmm. it comes to pop or rock music or whatever, and these are vague genres, I'm sure. But, you know, the responses that people can have to it are a lot more like limited in that sense, maybe. Maybe, I don't know, but it's, it's something definitely to consider, but it's definitely interesting that you had such a, that it had such a con contemplative effect on you. And for the record, I completely relate, even though maybe I'm not the, the same, like I'm not as deep into it as you are, but uh, I, I, I do genuinely love it. And I loved, I love the piece that he selected because so abrasive, so relentless, but then also never finds any sort of sure, sure footing as the rhythm changes and develops. There's so much instability and, you know, um, it's unpredictable. Um, and, and in that way, you know, a lot closer to actual human life, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's a, that's a very good observation you've made because I think we're going to find and people listening are going to find that throughout what Georgia has picked, what you've picked, what I have picked, there is an instability mm -hmm. with yeah. all of it. I think I'm going to say something quite profound, but I think in order to have experimental music, there must be instability. Yeah. Yeah. You know? No, yeah. like there can be patterns, but the patterns have to be unpredictable and untransparent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like there are definitely so um one another band, another black metal band that I really enjoy is Mayhem, and I especially love their song Life Eternal. Mm -hmm. And I think that that one is more straightforwardly trans like trans like in that I find that song actually incredibly relaxing because mm -hmm. um it is much more repetitive. I feel like this one doesn't really give you much time to get into that same kind of zone of repetitiveness. There are elements of it and times when it comes close, but not as, as immersive in its repetitiveness as Life Eternal is, um, which by the way was the first song that like I fell in love with in Mayhem. Yeah, it kind of denies you the opportunity to get fully immersed in that sort of translate state because it doesn't have the same degree of repet repetitiveness to it. Um, but that's why I think that this album, I, I, I listened to a critical kind of overview of it from one of Nout's favorite YouTubers. 
And I disagree. I disagree with his stance on this album. Um, what's his name? Anthony Fanpano, whatever it is. Yep. Is that it? Yep. I don't like him. I don't like him. <laughs> Dickhead. We're just putting it out there. Just putting it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he completely... I don't know, misunderstood it. Hold on, I want my gloomy thing back. Mm-hmm. I think he just completely misunderstood it, to be honest. Um, like, he he said that the the short length of it as an album worked against it, um, whereas their <laughs> other ones have been longer and stuff like that. But I, I think, again, the shortness of it and the degree of variation that they have with different album lengths is, again, part of that non-conventional experimental kind of approach that I really like them for. Much as I love longer black metal albums too, or like, you know, stuff like that, I think this worked really well as like it is just so abrasive and just kind of throws you in it um, and then and then just leaves you kind of in a heap and is like, yep, no more, you're done. Um <laughs> Yeah, I just kind of wanted to add that. There wasn't a way to like link that in with the actual kind of lecture side of it, but it, the length of it was an aspect that I particularly enjoy um, because it is it is so intense for such a short period of time. You mentioned something that I uh, sort of picked up on, only because, as everyone will find out later when I waffle on about what I'm talking about, you mentioned that they sort of just went, oh, there you are, there it is. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of just like, oh, that's the end, that's done. It's, you know, you'll notice when we go through Schoenberg later that it is exactly the same feel. Mm-hmm. It, it just sort of finishes. There's no start and an end. It's just music and then there's not music. Mm-hmm. And that and could be a good... Creating a workbook for experimental music. <laughs> yeah, and that can be good as well, I think, though. The, I mean, mm. I, really, I really like stuff that does that, that kind of shakes your world a bit and kind of... Mm-hmm. Plays with your expectations and subverts them so that you can't just fall into a accepted pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, You're Georgia. Welcome. That was really enlightening and interesting. You're welcome. Okay, so um, first reactions. What do we think about that? Feelings, thoughts, is everybody still alive? I really like it. I think it's incredibly varied. It changes a lot. Um, It's abrasive, but in a different way to how mine was abrasive. Um, You can't settle into anything. It's disjointed, um, unsettling but in a good way you know like I feel like there's there's different kinds of unsettling isn't there you know what I mean like this is the kind of unsettling where you're like oh it challenges me and it makes me be slightly uncomfortable at times and challenges me to make something of it it's not the spoken word elements and repetitive kind of like drumming sound and you can't sing along to it as such straightforwardly Callum, what did you make of it? What did you think? It was unique. Um, maybe more typically of me, I suppose I think I found it slightly easier to listen to than George's 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was very interesting. But I can't quite decide if I find it interesting in a good way or a bad way. If that makes sense. Not so mm-hmm. much not so much a good or a bad way. I, I, I can't decide if I enjoyed it, if that makes sense. But I kind of get the impression that that's the idea behind it. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so um, before we get on with like a lyrical interpretation and analysis of, of of the song and and what it means, which I will get into a little bit. We'll get into some, you know, um, dialectic philosophies in a bit. But before we get into that, I do want to give some context. So Clara references the public execution of Italian dictator Mussolini and his mistress Clara Petacci at the end of World War II in 1945. Um, Basically, it was inspired by, um, this is all like just some, you know, biographical context, which I don't think the song necessarily well, I, I think kind of the song calls for it because it, it also is referenced in the lyric booklet of The Drift. If you um, get this CD and you look through the booklet, it does describe the events um, that inspired the song. So in that sense, I do have to take into consideration. And the song is named after Clara, Clara Petacci from um, Mussolini's Mistress. Um, so basically the context is that when Scott Walker was very young, his aunt took him to the cinema. And before the movie would start, they would show all newsreels. And one of which was a brutal, horrific footage of the two bodies of Mussolini and his mistress, Clara, who were publicly executed. And were then, um, you know, whose bodies were then um, hung, hung up on uh, ropes uh, in the midst of a mob who then sort of let loose um, and uh, in a wild sort of cathartic, um, you know, mob um, while they were dangling from ropes uh, with a mob, spitting on them, beating their bodies with sticks. Um, I think uh, one person also like decided to empty his machine gun on uh, Mussolini, completely um, de- transforming his face. There's horrific pictures of it on the internet if you so wish to um, see that. But yes, um, that's basically the context of this. Um, Basically, um, Clara, a little bit of more context, Clara volunteered to die next to Mussolini, even though Mussolini himself had um, figured out an, an, an escape for her so that she didn't have to die. Um, they basically were um, um, on the run. They were fleeing. Um, but yeah, uh, basically Mussolini had managed to wave for Clara um, to escape, but she didn't want that. She wanted to die next to Mussolini for whom she had a blind adoration. Um, I'm not gonna get it, get into too much in the historical um, context anymore other than um, what is really funny to mention is that Clara was 30 years younger than Mussolini. So, you know, like George, if you think that 12 years is, is a lot, contemplate 30 years, So I'm gonna say to that. I might do it yet, you never know. I might add someone else to the mix. It's 30 yep. years older. Uh, plenty of space, plenty of space. Plenty of space. And, um, and finally, also one thing that I should mention is that, as I'm sure you all know, Hitler committed suicide in, in, in a bunker. But the reason why he did that is that he didn't want um, he didn't want to happen to his body what happened to Mussolini's body. He was inspired by uh, Mussolini's death to commit suicide secretly, secretively, and then have his body be, uh, you know, exhumed or, or, you know, hidden or whatever happened to it um, before an angry mob could get to it and, and maim it the way that they did to Mussolini. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing to contemplate because I think only a few days or weeks afterwards, uh, Hitler um, committed suicide, but that was, you know, because he saw what happened to Mussolini and he did not want that to happen to his own body. Um, 
That's a little bit the historical context. Now we just want to talk quickly a little bit about um, Scott Walker. I selected Clara by Scott Walker from his album The Drifts from 2006, which is one of my favorite records of all time. Um, Scott Walker died in 2019, so he's not around anymore to hear my undoubtedly brilliant analysis. But one of the reasons why I've chosen him as a prime example of, you know, someone who I think is really creative and interesting is the fact that I do love a good creative journey and, and Georgia knows that about me. He basically started off with the semi sort of, you know, 60s boy band-ish, kind of the Walker Brothers. You know, they were teenage idols um, in their day. Um, and you might know them from the hit song, The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore, which I'm, I won't, you know, sing. Um, but anyone who wants to can check that on YouTube or, uh, you know, preferred media listening platform um, of their choice. Um, so there was, they, they experienced typical boy band stuff in, in the sense of like mad female adoration for, you know, their handsomeness, catchy pop hits, the whole shebang. Um, and then in the late 60s, um, he released uh, a bunch of brilliant solo records that were very much inspired by Jacques Brel. Um, Jacques Bell was um, a, a famous Belgian um, singer-songwriter, uh, and he was very much inspired by that, and his solo records um, featured also some English translations of Jacques Bell's music. But yeah, they're very, very good albums, and then afterwards he made a bunch of albums that were more like, you know, for the record label kind of, you know, contract albums. And then he kind of disappeared and made a, a brief reunion record with the Walker Brothers in 1978, sorry, called Night Flights, which was sort of really an early, if you listen to that, it's, it's quite, quite experimental. Um, like it, it's sort of the early seeds, you know, were sown for what he would later on would do with uh, the drifts. And from there on, things became ever more experimental uh, and the gaps between records took longer. So in 85, he released an album called Climate of Hunter, which was very experimental, all the way to Tilt, which became very shocking, disturbing. Uh, 10 years later, The Drift was released. So, uh, and then after Drift, he made two more albums. One with uh, one was called Bish Bosh 2012, and then one with um, the experimental drone outfit called Sun, uh, a record called South, which I can also wholeheart wholeheartedly recommend. But I think the drift out of everything that he made in this sort of latter day period is easily my favorite personally. Um, and I've chosen Clara because I think it's a prime example, not only of what you can expect from Scott Walker, but also I find it to be quite digestible and colorful and interesting but also enticing and enveloping. There's some other pieces on the drift that I equally love, but that I think are a lot harder to get into. And I chose this one because I thought that, you know, um, for the critical audience that I have uh, and, and, you know, the huge mass appeal of your podcast, I just thought it would be interesting to maybe choose um, a piece of music that more people would, would find easier to sort of get into. And if they were to like this, then they could explore other pieces by Scott Walker. I'm referring it to as a piece because, you know, it's a question, right? Is this still a song? Is this not a song? There's melody, there's singing, there's lyrics. You know, it definitely has a lot of like song components. Um, but, you know, is this still a song? Is it a tonal poem? You know, these are some questions that I think the music um, asks us. Um, but, you know, you can definitely call it a piece, maybe a song. I don't know. Um, so now a little bit um, with regards to um, Scott Walker and his approach, much like is the case with Death Spell Omega, 
uh, for Scott Walker, his lyrics come first and then they lead to music. Um, so in the beginning was the words and then language is deciphered into a musical language, as you also said, um, Georgia. So I thought that, that was an interesting sort of overlap. Um, if we look a little bit at the lyrics, you can sort of see how that sort of happens. So in the beginning, there is this kind of thing of like birds, um, which is actually a sort of almost oral interpretation of what the sounds of a film reel is. Uh, and you can hear that um, as it is um, repeated in the middle of the song. So it kind of reflects like the film reel that is based on the memory of Scott Walker, you know, first seeing this clip on an old film reel in the cinema which is then repeated in the middle section where um, you hear the woman singing, you know, sometimes I feel like a swallow, blah, blah, blah. but before that happens, you get back to that kind of like, almost like eerie film reel sound, which actually can sound like birds. Um, and um, of course, another um, element with that is first of all, birds are not human, which is a theme that is um, running throughout this song, the dehumanization um, process that happens in this song but also birds, you know, do come together in multitudes. Uh, you know, they, 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 they swarm and they, they live in multitudes, much like the mob um, does that too. I, I am just interpreting here, obviously, but I'm just sort of trying to give some clues as to how you should approach it. It's almost modernist, even though Scott Walker is always denied, you know, sitting, sort of saying like, yeah, I'm not a modernist, but I do think that, you know, a modernist approach and the interpretation of it can sort of help you to understand the lyrics a little bit better, too. Um, with regards to the negative thing, so, you know, from the beginning of the song, it's kind of like, you know, defined by what it isn't. You know, the first lyrics are like, this is not a corn husk doll dipped in blood in the moonlight. So there's immediately this thing of like, it's constantly the bodies of, of Mussolini and, and Clara are constantly being defined as what they are not. You know, they, these are real people. But actually, as the song progresses and as we get towards the end of the song, and then it becomes like this is a corn husk doll dipped in blood in the moonlight. Um, actually, the dehumanization process um, has kind of become complete in that sense. Um, you know, I think what the mob, uh, mob mentality and, um, you know, the catharsis of the object violence um, and anger and explosive rage um, has done to the bodies of Mussolini, Clara, but, but so many other, other human beings too, what that does is that they kind of dehumanize it, is it dehumanizes it. Um, you see that also like in the chorus where, um, you know, there are certain aspects of their bodies that are being discussed. The breasts are, uh, are heavy, uh, legs long and straight, upper lip remains short. So there's like little elements of a human body being individually discussed, but they're never really composed as one sort of person. They are just sort of human body parts that are sort of dissected and described, but never in the context of a person. So much as is the case, you know, for your music, Georgia, for um, Despel and Makeup, there is also, I would say, arguably a process of dehumanization going on through the vehicle of, of, of you know, violence uh, in, in that regard. Also, what I wanted to also maybe say in my interpretation is that like what happened in America um, is, is an obscure reference, but the way that I see it a little bit is that, you know, you should 
not forget that at the time Hitler and Mussolini in America regarded were often regarded as clownish kind of figures, almost caricatures of themselves. Um, and you know, it's kind of this thing of like the dehumanization processes that were happening from both sides, both in the country where you know Mussolini and Clara ended up dying in Italy, and were then you know um, whose bodies were. Um, um, you know, completely dehumanized in that sense, but also from the other aspect where in America, for example, the process of dehumanization actually came from the fact that, yeah, but like these dictators are just sort of clowns or foolish. They're, you know, in that sense, they're not real. And therefore maybe, you know, the dangers of, of their discourse, the dangers of their word, the dangers of their actions were not fully taken seriously, you know, uh, and I don't want to, you know, make too many parallels, but, you know, we can definitely draw parallels with, um, you know, our current day world in many, many respects. So that is something that as I was listening to the drift in general, uh, again, for this podcast that really revealed itself to me is that this record is really quite um, ahead of its time in terms of that. So many things that this record references is from viruses, pandemics, there's a song about a pandemic in there, um, to dictators, to violence, to dehumanization, um, etc. I think all of these things that this record references, um, you can find in our current day world, but just in different forms. So the record has this way of sort of echoing, um, which is very, very interesting to consider. Um, you know, the question at heart here is, what is reality? Is the reality here the violence that gushes forth from the open wounds that is the end of every dictatorship? Is, is reality the catharsis of violence of an angry mob that is never silenced? Is reality just, you know, the movie as it is sort of played over and over and over again, much like trauma, you know, um, is constantly being repeated. You know, reality in and of itself here, I think, in this lyric is kind of questions, as that is also reflected in a music that never seems to find any sort of sure footing or, or never managed to grasp a hold of, of what is actually happening and never managed to become completely cohesive as it goes through um, different stages. I also want to mention that um, the percussion aspect of it, there's this part in the middle um, where you hear the woman saying, Some, sometimes I feel like a swallow, but also the vertiginous uh, orchestral sections too. You can hear the sort of that kind of part. Um, this is actually for full reference. This was actually the percussionist uh, beating on um, a full uh, rack of uh, pork chops um, and beating on them which I think from a conceptual point of view, considering the song is so much about violence and, um, you know, cruelty and, um, you know, death, I do think um, makes sense. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's problematic for sure, but also um, it gives you a really interesting sound quality, especially, especially in the middle section where you can hear the percussionist go like, <clears throat> you know, that part, like the actual sort of almost goriness of it, you know, echoes a little bit also like, you know, black metal gore, um, but um, in, a, in a completely different, different light. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to mention that because I know that George also will probably have an opinion to share about that. So, you know. I have um, several. I am making notes. Don't you worry. <laughs> great. I'm counting on it. Um, so... 
to quote, so I was reading this essay from Timothy Baines about, about the drift. This is how you disappear. But what justifies the lynching? Mussolini's own act of terror? And after that, after death, what justifies the vilification? How is mourning and therefore justice possible here? The text opens onto such questions, leaves them suspended and beckons us to make a decision. Um, I feel that that is a very, very, you know, accurate description of what is happening here. It's about the disappearance of, you know, humanity in that sense, both from the point of view of the mob that is sort of, you know, an, an, an anonymous mass, but also from the perspective of Mussolini and Clara, who are not regarded as, you know, human beings anymore, but they are scapegoats. Um, and yeah, by the way, this is not me simping for either one of them, but, you know, I'm just calling out, you know, the dangers in um, process of, processes of dehumanization and how violence always begets violence and, you know, um, always creates, you know, more violence. Um, and that in itself is, is you know, um, a danger. Um, Clara is a meditation. This is also another quote from the same essay. Clara is a meditation on the necessity of mourning and justice, but it begins with the refusal of this necessity, like, you know, by saying, yeah, this is not a corn, this is not that, this, there's no need for mourning or justice. And the subsequent, subsequent refuse of the bodies of Mussolini and Pitacci. What remains after their lynching? Nothing, death remains. Of absolute freedom, Hegel writes, its negation is a death that is without meaning, the sheer terror of the negative that contains nothing positive, nothing that fills it with a content. Pure negation, nothing to claim in the name of a future resource or telos. No Aufhebung, not only death, but the coldest and meanest of all deaths, with no more significance than cutting off a head of cabbage or swallowing a mouthful of water. Um, which sort of, you know, kind of relates back to the central theme of the record, you know, called the drift. So there's this expression, you know, do you catch my drift? And I think, you know, when you look at humans dehumanizing, I think a drift, a general sort of mindset or mentality can be so easily spread like a virus, like an idea, and can therefore then also lead to, you know, situations like not only dictatorships, but the violence that, you know, that they leave in their wake. Um, do you catch this drift? Can you catch this drift? Is this drift contagious? Is the drift violent? Is there any sense of control? Um, which, you know, the drift as a title also therefore questions. And, you know, judging by the music and the ever shifting, you know, um, Protigenous spaces that this music creates, you know, the answer is very much up in the air. Thank you for listening. No, thank you. That was very interesting. Do you have anything to say to that, Callum? Um, I think I will allow you to make a start on your list because you said you've been making some notes. So I'll, I'll chime in when I. <laughs> I just had a couple of thoughts really pertaining to the use of animals and uh, the kind of um, theme of nature really throughout. Um, I guess I'm going to just have to try and keep talking for as long as possible because now it's now feverishly munching on lunch. I ate mine whilst he did his piece and lecture and now he's eating his whilst, <laughs> whilst I'm trying to like, you know, formulate my thoughts. 
Um, first of all, that problematic meat slapping. Um, yeah, uh, it is something that I did think about when you said that. I did have some thoughts to it. Not straightforwardly ones against it, as you might imagine, even though I am vegetarian. Um, I think it makes a point very well. And there's a part of me that can't help think of it in terms of, you know, capitalism, capitalist theories merged with animal rights theories and how the two intersect. Um, it's also something actually, as, as long as we're talking about similarities between this piece and a lot of black metal, um, a lot of black metal artists do use animal kind of, you know, gore and offal and animal heads and stuff on stage. And, and quite surprisingly, maybe as a long time vegan these days, just vegetarian. Um, I actually am not against it. Um, I think it's a, it's a reminder of the horrible, grotesque realities and side effects of the meat and dairy industry um, to, to see those things. And it's, it's a harsh reminder that kind of shocks you out of it. And I actually kind of have a lot more respect for bands that do that rather than people that would be offended by that sort of thing, but then maybe after the concert go and eat meat. You know what I mean? That sort of like repugnance, uh, the idea of, of the, this grotesque, bloody, carnal kind of side, um, but being quite happy to still eat those products themselves. I think that there's a degree of honesty about it that I can respect. Um, so, yeah, my thoughts actually is that that's quite effective to be slapping the um, hunk of, of meat. Um, and I guess you could say in a reminder, the fact that we are all essentially just all animals and are all just lumps of meat and especially when we are dead we're all kind of rendered into that same state and things that play with it um now babes you better really hurry up and chew that mouthful because i am doing your work for you here <laughs> no i mean no no but absolutely thank you um very interesting and thank you for sharing that um <clears throat> yes and i feel the same about that i have exactly the same opinion as as you do um, what a great echo think, chamber this relationship is, though. Yeah, exactly. It's normally always so contentious between the two of us. Um, I think one thing that I would also still add is that I do like, and that is in general the case for Scott Walker, his dedication to sound design. Um, when you listen to his other stuff, too, you can hear sometimes, like, there's one where you can hear, like, a donkey um, make horrific, horrific sounds. Um, on Bish Bosch, there's a farting sound, which makes conceptual a lot of sense. Uh, he works with blades to get a certain sound across. So it's very, very, you know, performative and theatrical, but not straightforwardly visual. Um, you know, it's a kind of record that you need to listen to in the dark in order to feel it. And I think, you know, just by having someone slap that meat, um, when you listen to the record, you know, on headphones, you can actually hear that there's a certain quality to the sound that is really deeply unsettling. Um, but it's also you... not clear what it is. Exactly. Right? Like it, it kind exactly. of reminds me of um, simulator and simulation, you know, the Baudrillard kind of theory, the idea that we have lost all ability to distinguish between what is real and what is artifice. Like, you know, once you pointed exactly. it out that he was slapping meat on it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can hear that. But like what I was saying about would you be able to tell if it was human flesh or meat? In and of itself, these things are very difficult to identify unless it's kind of pointed out to you, which is us being handed a sign or a symbol and told 
this is what it is this is how you interact with it and how you interpret that um yep. yeah I was, I was going to evoke you know Baudrillard but then I didn't you know have enough time anymore not only in terms of preparation but I also didn't want to exceed my time limit to you know grotesque yeah. portions um but sure, yes sure, definitely sure. <laughs> I, was, I was also thinking of Baudrillard I actually have him open right here um maybe one other thing that I think is a good sort of you know reference point in the analysis of the lyric is agency. I think there's little to no agency from anyone who partakes in it, except for um, agency and stability. There's no stability in the narration. The, the points of view shifts, whether it's, um, you know, it starts from this is us, as in Clara and, and Mussolini, um, to the point of view from Clara in the third person, um, to the Clara in the first person to the final narrator, you know, um, who finds this bird trapped in his attic and then decides to open the window and let it fly, presumably, but who knows, you know, he opens his hands, but, you know, we don't know if the bird still lives or not, we have no clue. But, you know, so only like, you know, there's little to no um, agency throughout the song, not from the mob, which is sort of, you know, devoid of agency, but, you know, not, not from anyone, really. There's not a lot of, like, sense of, in that sense, you know. Um, I mean, birds are quite superstitious as, like, a sign as well. So I think it's interesting that it begins with birds and then you have this violent account of sort of their death and then it ends with a bird as well. And as you say, we don't know if the bird is alive or dead. I think that's a nice fitting narrative kind of conceptual thing and that the, the presence of the birds at the start has been, like, an omen prophesying death based on that kind of superstition um and then that that theme kind of carries you throughout it and so in that way I wonder <clears throat> I wonder whether that is why this kind of free will and agency thing um is is absent in it because the ending has already been foretold you've seen the presence of this bird at the start you know that death is a part of this there is no free will aspect of it um death is inevitable exactly I'm looking at Arnold Schoenberg. I hope that's the right pronunciation, but then again, I'm English, so it probably isn't. Um, he's very well known for writing atonal music, um, which is essentially music that isn't written in any particular key. Um, it sort of often ignores conventional harmonies you'd expect to find uh, in music. Uh, additionally, he was a key figure in the dodecaphonic music so <laughs> dodecaphonic music um whilst he didn't come up with the concept himself he was one of its most prolific users it's a sort of 12 tone technique which is a way of writing music with the idea that all 12 notes of the scale are played as frequently as each other um so obviously that method goes hand in hand with atonal music uh, a sort of abandonment of non and non-conformity to conventional musical writing um he piece of music or collection of works rather that I am going to be looking at are called Six Little Piano Pieces. I'm going to try and pronounce it in the original, I think it, is, it must be German, um, Sex Klein Klavierstück. That's what it's actually called, but the English translation is Six Little Piano Pieces. Um, so they were published in 1911. He wrote number one to five in one sitting in a day. Uh, and then he added the sixth song, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks later, after the death of Gustav Mahler, who had influenced him in his work. Um, 
However, I did a bit of research and a lady called Teresa Muxenada puts it that the um, six little pieces were the antithesis of the symphonies of Schoenberg's contemporary, who is Mahler. Um, I think they knew each other quite well, uh, Schoenberg and Mahler. Um, I know Mahler had a sort of profound effect on Schoenberg's writing. Um, so with Mahler in mind, I thought we would have a look at music that was being released at the same time as these sort of experimental pieces coming out from Schoenberg. Um, so in 1910, obviously a year before Schoenberg brought out these six little pieces, Mahler had finished his 10th symphony. Very um, string heavy, very orchestral, that lovely, you know, it, it, it's, it's familiar, I think is the best way to describe it. It's a familiar style of presenting music. Um, that particular piece of music, it was only the first movement that Mahler actually finished. Um, he died when, when, I think it was, I think it was late 2010, no, May, May 1911, I think. He started writing that the year before, but only finished the first movement. So, you know, musicians have had to look at his draft notes to be able to compose the rest of it. Um, another key figure is Holst. Um, many, I think many people are familiar with the planets. Um, they're very popular. I mean, Classic FM plays them to absolute death um, with fans of classical music. Um, they were written between 1914 and 1970, so they were slightly after Schoenberg wrote these six little pieces, but I just wanted to give you an idea of what was going on at the time. I think Holst is a very good example of the composer who, whilst adherent to acceptable and predetermined musical practices, was not afraid to push the boat out and try something a bit different. The only other person I want to mention, um, and George, I know you love him as much as I do, is Eric Satie. Um, now, obviously, I say obviously, not everybody knows, but in 1890, so 21 years before Schoenberg released, uh, these six little pieces. Um, Satie composed and published um, Trois Nociennes, Three Nociennes, um, which were very experimental, sort of for then at least. Um, he was one particular composer who had been active in at least the first half of Schoenberg's life. Um, similar elements, you can see what Satie is trying to do. Um, and obviously in 1890, they, they were quite experimental, but not quite, not quite as experimental, I would say, as Schoenberg is 21 years later. Um, now, you said when you were talking about yours, um, that music can sort of describe parts of the body, but not the whole. Um, I was doing a bit of research and I was reading about Schoenberg and what happened. Somebody I was reading um, suggested that the six pieces that he's written are like he's taken the best bits of a much larger work and condensed them down. So we are sort of, you know, getting descriptions maybe of limbs, not the whole body. Uh, so obviously, as I said, um, I have done a bit of research and Teresa Muxenader aptly asserts that this first of the six pieces consists of melodic nuclei 
that do not come together into a phrase, but are heard one after the other as disjointed thoughts. And you can you can sort of hear that in the opening line. You've got. It's sort of the right hand has got a little consistency and the left hand is just like, oh, I want to do this. You know, I'm going to add this in here. Wait for me, you know. Um, the sort of descending lines in the right hand set against the rising gestures in the left hand. Um, it, this demonstrates the disjointed nature of this piece. It's sort of as if the right hand and the left hand are arguing over direction. Um, so sort of in the second line, you've got. You've got, you've got the right hand trying to come down, but the left hand is forcing it back up. Um, and then you sort of in the last sort of five bars, um, they seem to be more melodic, but they're rather anticlimactic because they just sort of end without resolution. I'm not going to play both hands. I'll just play the melody for you quickly so you get a feel of it. It's not to say that there's not a melody elsewhere in the piece. Uh, for example, bars four to six, there are clear melodies. But the problem is that the four melodies are on top of each other. Uh, so you get no sense of harmony whatsoever. Um, so you've got the top line, which goes. Which is joined by the second line. Trying the third line, which is the first in the left hand. And then finally, you've got the very bottom layer in the left hand. And then when it's all together, sense of harmony whatsoever you can pick out um the individual melodies but it is a mash of them all together right this is number four out of all six of them this is the shortest but i think it manages to fit quite a lot into that time frame uh you know this piece definitely echoes ideas found in the previous three pieces uh, and as I've mentioned with the other ones, you can clearly hear uh, the sort of descending right hand against the ascending left hand. I mean, most particularly sort of this bit here. You know, you've got the right hand desperately trying to come down, but the left hand is like, no, fuck you, we're going back up. Um, <laughs> and the little outburst at the end, uh, is designed to startle and is in stark contrast to the light and airy opening of the piece. Um, however, it is worth noting um, that in terms of the notes, the outburst in bar 10, uh, this bit here, um, is absolutely identical to the opening. It's just an octave lower. So the opening is sort of... 
And then the little outburst, if I was to play it in the same rhythm, is exactly the same. Um, which I think is very clever, and it does demonstrate how you can interpret music differently. I mean, it's exactly the same notes, but it's, uh, you know, different dynamic level, different rhythm. Um, and as I said earlier, it is very startling. It is an outburst. It's as if it's like, oh, come on, I, I'm getting to the end of this. I, I've had enough. Quickly, finish. And you get these massive wallops on these chords at the end. Uh, and, and, you know, it has a very definitive ending. Uh, but despite that, it somehow still manages to feel unfinished. Um, and that does sort of link back to the idea that these pieces are designed to sort of be like a best hits album, as it were, to a much longer piece of music. You know, there's only so much you can cram into what you can't cram an entire symphony into one page of music. And it, it very much feels like the music has started and then the music stops. There's no, there's no intro, there's no outro. Um, you know, there, there's no pleasing perfect cadence finish. There's not even an imperfect cadence finish, um, which sort of makes them all feel quite uncomfortable. Uh, I'm going to move on. This last instalment of uh, Sex Klein Klevishtuk feels quite different uh, to the rest. Uh, and, you know, there is good reason. I mean, the first five, of, as I said earlier, were written in one sitting. They were written in a day. This one was added in at the end. It came um, a couple of weeks later after Gustav Mahler's funeral. I don't think much time actually passed between the funeral and him writing this. Uh, and this piece in particular represents the furthest degree of dematerialization of musical language. You know, you've got two chords which rather gloomily open uh, the piece and the same two chords close the piece. There's only one point where anything sort of linear intrudes. I mean, e even that is not particularly taxing. It's uh, You know, there's almost nothing to it, but it's very light. And you sort of sense that this might have been how Schoenberg was feeling after the death of his friend. You know, almost sort of heavenly cause up at the top. But actually, when you get into it, he, he's feeling sort of down here. Quite, it's very gloomy. I say it, the whole thing, like the rest of them, they're very disjointed. Um, as I say, this one I would say is the most different out of all of them, and I do think that stems because I think he was writing from a place of grief, um, which I'm sure is a place that uh, you know, dark metal writers, black metal writers, and um, obviously, I know in the instance of Clara, obviously, that was from a dark place. Um, you know, it has a great impact on music. I think experimental music is a better way of conveying that because traditional classical music, you know, you end up with Brahms and you've got sweeping up and down the keyboard. Um, but I don't know, it always seems like a much more light-hearted way of describing pain, whereas experimental music you can 
figure it out and try and actually convey it how you want to. And it's okay if, you know, it sounds not what people are expecting. If people don't understand it straight away, that's kind of the point of it. At the end of the day, it's a representation of what the composer wanted to write, um, which nine times out of ten is how the composer is feeling. So I think, you know, experimental music, you actually understand an artist much more. Um, I mean, Satie as well, you know, those Nossiens, very sort of, as I say, free time, no bar lines. They feel very different to the stuff he was producing round about, you know, the time that these came out. Um, with his bureaucratic sonatina, you know, that, that it fiddles around in A major and, you know, rarely disappears from that. Um, and it's upbeat and what have you, but um, you just can't convey as much, I don't think, um, in typical classical music. When you, because the problem is, you then just find you're just observing the rules of classical music. Like, oh, I've ended this piece, so I must end in a perfect cadence. Or, you know, I'm in C major, so the relative minor must be A minor. You, you know, you can't, you mustn't dare go anywhere else. Um, so I think it's liberating for a composer to write experimental music. Anyway, that concludes my TED talk on there, on Arnold Schoenberg. Are you thoroughly bored? No, it was very interesting. And I was thinking how there's a lot of overlap, actually, um, between everything that we've been discussing, even though we've all approached this from very different yes. genres, the kind of overarching theme of experimentalism runs throughout it. And I actually was thinking through and made a list, because I fucking love a list, of different <laughs> reoccurring themes that I sort of spotted across all of our different mm -hmm. uh, little TED Talks. Um, mm, the idea yeah. of something being disjointed, uh, the sense of dissonance, endings without resolutions, um, mm -hmm. you know, obviously in mind, there's that sudden, you know, yeah. an end is coming, but you're not sure when, and then suddenly it just yeah. drops you. Um, with Nouts, again, this very incredibly varied piece of music that doesn't have mm -hmm. clear structured parts, that it's all a kind of very varied soundscape. Um, and then in yours, the different cadence at the end and um the disjointedness of that uh yeah also the sense of conflicts and um no sense of mm -hmm. harmony and the mashing yep. of melodies i just thought these were things that's really interesting how they kind of seem to run as themes throughout <laughs> experimental music um and i yep. guess it if you're going to make something experimental and non-conventional it kind of has to have that right because otherwise if it's pleasant and easy to listen to and doesn't have that degree of kind of being not quite satisfying or just slightly off then it would just be conventional right like it wouldn't have that yep. um, experimental um element to it I guess um one bit that I really liked don't really have much to add to it but I loved the part about the the Nossians and the kind of melancholy nature of it <laughs> mm -hmm. um who doesn't love the Nossians? Yeah, I mean, Sati is my shit. I walked around so much in lockdown, <laughs> listening to that shit in the rain, makeup dripping down my face, <laughs> vibing, picturing that I'm in some kind of dark academic film. Um, yeah. yeah, loved it. Created a brilliant vibe. And so that idea of um, disjointed thoughts and melodic nuclei mm. and stuff, I don't know, yeah, it just kind of really resonated with me and my kind of experience yeah. with the music. Because I think that's yeah. what 
experimental music kind of does to you in a way it's an experience and a, and a, a more challenging one than perhaps conventional music mm-hmm. is because yes. of some of those reasons yeah well that's the thing like i said with you know we'll take Sati as an example we had the Nossi ends but also you know in i think it was 19 i want to say 1918 1917 somewhere that he wrote the bureaucratic sonatina mm-hmm. it's such a difference it really is mm-hmm. i forgot what my train of thought was for that but there we go I have another random little one for you that I wanted to pick up on. Um, number four of the six piano pieces. I don't think you've played one of it, my but, favorites. I, but I know that Nell has played this game as well, and I know that you'll probably agree with me. Really reminded me of Untitled Goose Game. What? It's this game that we've both played where it's a perfect, beautiful day in the village and you are a naughty goose, and you play as this goose that just goes around fucking shit up. And... um. I'll show you a clip of it later, Callum, if you want. Um, but basically, mm. it's that very similar sort of thing where there's almost like a little bit of like kind of calm music. But then when the goose starts to misbehave and fuck shit up, it kind of goes into this chaotic, <laughs> cheeky, childlike piano that just kind of feels very disjointed and disobedient mm-hmm. in that way. And it really reminded me of that. I, I, Yeah, I think I'm going to play The fourth you one is quite one, cheeky, yeah. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Very it really much so. That. And I think when I show you this game, I think you'll see what I mean mm-hmm. by why it reminded me so much of it. <laughs> Do you see it as well now? Yeah, I absolutely saw that. It it had that same kind of level of, because that's what I love so much about that game, that it has that kind of like, it's slightly unnerving. The music yep. is slightly unnerving. And it kind of, <laughs> ooh, I need to do something and ooh, something could go wrong. And then you... Mm-hmm. And then, what I really like is just sort of the, indeed, as you also said, Callum, the disjointedness and, I mean, you know, much as I don't really understand music, um, you know, from a technical point of view, what I can definitely tell that I love is sort of the right and the left hand doing two different things. And mm-hmm. you know, normally that would be used to create harmony, but here in this sense, actually, you know, used to create a sort of sense of disjointedness, even though separately, yeah. you know, the two pieces sounds quite you know, if you listen to what the left hand is doing or the right hand is doing, both of them sound quite aesthetic and beautiful, but then mm. you combine the two of them together, it becomes something else just because of how they exist next to each other in time, um, which is, yeah. yeah. That's the thing. And, you know, that's why I take stock in that observation I read about him, you know, writing these pieces as if they were a concentrated form of a much larger piece. You know, yep. you have lovely melodies that he comes up with for the treble clef and the bass clef, but the way he lays them out, there's just this dissonance throughout. There's no harmony whatsoever. Yep. If you take it apart, bits of it sound really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, one thing that I was kind of wondering, and this is a very vague question, more of a thought, <laughs> And not one that I think we should get even into answering, but just something I kind of wanted to bring this to a close with. It's the idea of can anything ever be truly experimental? Just, I guess that's not a good way of phrasing it, but I guess what I'm I'm also wondering is, okay, I'll speak from it from the place that I've been researching. So with black Mm -hmm. metal, we can say how, oh, it's non-conventional, it's this, it's that, but it's like, yeah, but like that's kind of the idea of black metal itself. So if you are describing yourself as black metal, can you really do anything non-conventional mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. experimental? Because 
you're you know you're you're participating in yeah. the sort of idea of genre and there are you know not rules to it but if you identified and you say that's black metal or that's this or that's that then it, eh, has it kind of failed in its goal of being experimental in a way mm-hmm. if you're able to recognize that it does sort of belong to this and that's kind of yeah. part why I hate talking genre in a clear-cut way of like yeah yeah I don't want to pin it down to this because that feels a bit limiting in a way today's experimental is tomorrow's new genre exactly because yeah. you know, every genre is in itself you know explorative and experimental creativity is inherently experimental mm-hmm. inherently I mean well I mean you know actual creativity you know mm-hmm. not- yeah you know, formulaic, you know. And, and I mean, it becomes sorry. problematic when you want to define what actual creativity is. So, you know, like you get into very slippery territory. But yeah, indeed, experimental in and of itself as a term is, you know, calls into question, you know, the actual meaning of the word itself. Because, mm-hmm. because I'm thinking as well along the lines of in black metal, you have first wave black metal that, you know, kind of kicks off with, you know, with bands like, venom and stuff and then you have second wave where you're getting into all the norwegian bands and stuff and then you've got Mm -hmm. all these different modern versions that are being done now um there's a manifesto by is it hack now yep the transcendental black metal Uh, which lays yep that kind of that kind of lays out a manifesto for transcendental black metal that kind of engages critically with these earlier um, waves of black metal and then kind of tries to make an argument for a, you know, a kind of new iteration of it and how it has moved and transformed and things and identify mm-hmm. starting points of it. Um, but I just kind of wonder more in a, in a bigger sense, can that ever truly be the case? Because we're just adding to what has already been done and maybe all trying to convince ourselves it's experimental. But if there is so much experimental stuff out there and all of it has these similar themes of disjointed dissonance, oh, it's this, it's that, how experimental is it? If across mm-hmm. all these different genres, experimental mm-hmm. music still has mm-hmm. so many of these same components. And, um, and- it's not really doing anything new or experimental then, is it? No. Absolutely. And similarly, maybe as a final sort of remark too, like a lot of this is also culturally determined because, for example, if you were to look at, you know, different different cultures, different, you know, expressions of, of music, for example, throughout different cultures and continents and stuff like that, poetry, uh, et cetera, things that we would label as experimental when perceived here without any sort of context, you know, would maybe be the norm in, in another culture. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when I was, I Googled when Callum told us about who he was going to be looking like, um, how how do I say it? Can somebody please, I hate pronouncing, I'm paranoid as fuck. Oh, oh, Schoenberg. Schoenberg. Um, I Googled about him and whether it was experimental and I found a, a lot of articles arguing that it's not actually this like experimental thing. It's actually just an extension mm. and a mm. way of, and a way of bridging between these two different parts. So, you know, I, I don't know, whatever whatever one of us would call experimental someone else might say oh no that's just an extension of this it isn't actually doing anything new um i don't expect us to solve this dilemma now but it's just something i was kind of thinking on through the end there Mm. very interesting it's 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 very individual isn't it Mm -hmm. it really is i mean music in all forms but especially experimental music Mm mm-hmm 
it's like the you know the the black metal that you played me you got something from it that I don't you know it mm-hmm. really is listener dependent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think that wraps it up quite nicely for us mm. I think so too thank you Brilliant. so much Thank you for coming along and doing another episode with us. You're becoming quite a regular fixture on this podcast. <laughs> I know you've nearly done more than I have. How many? Yeah, maybe. No, no not quite. No. I've, well, done, I've done about 40% more than you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that just about wraps us up for this episode. Um. Thank you very much for keeping us company now and for introducing us to the work of uh, Scott Walker. And obviously, thank you, Georgia, for yet again <laughs> making me listen to extreme metal music. I'm going to make a metalhead of you, yeah. Debatable. Unless <laughs> your plan is to wrap an iron wrench around my head, then I'd be a metalhead. I think I'm going to try and find a Poirot-themed black metal band. <laughs> I'm sure it exists. Probably does. I'm sure somewhere. it exists. Probably um, does. <laughs> uh, right, but uh, I think that's about it. Until next time. Until next time. Wonderful. Wonderful.